With that said, in Revelation chapter 12, as I shared uh, last week, uh, there's really three scenes that we see in this 12th chapter of Revelation. We looked at the first six verses of chapter 12 last week. Today we're going to look at the next six, verses 7 to 12. And I titled the message for this next scene, War Broke Out in Heaven. In this chapter, we find, and I shared this last week, we have two signs that were given. The first sign that we read about was a woman that was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. The second sign was in verse 3, where John saw a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Signs in scripture, signs throughout even the book of Revelation. This is an unfolding of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're getting to see the end of all things. The time is coming, and I believe it's really at hand, that the church needs to be aware of these things. This is the end times events. This is the things to come, the things that we as Christians should be waiting for, anticipating that this time is coming. And it should cause us to be, be a witness for Jesus Christ. We should be pulling out all of the stops in these days to be a witness for Christ. We identified already in this chapter three main characters. First was the woman. Who's the woman? Say it loud. Israel. Israel. Say it loud. Israel. The woman is Israel. Who's the fiery red dragon? Satan. Satan. And who's the male child that we read about? Jesus. And so you know, right there, we have the woman, the fiery red dragon, and the male child. It speaks about Israel, it speaks about Satan, and it speaks about Jesus. We also have the three scenes that we looked at. And the first scene, I titled it Satan and the Antichrist Plan. You see, he has a plan, but it will fail, and we're going to see that even this morning. In scene two, our text this morning, war breaks out in heaven between Michael and the great dragon. And then next week, we'll look at scene three, where the woman is persecuted. Who's the woman? Israel. Okay. We're starting to get it. Remember that the 70th week of Daniel is also known as the seven-year tribulation period. It, this period, it starts with the Antichrist making a peace agreement with the nation of Israel. When the Antichrist comes on the scene as that white horse, there's going to be some type of peace agreement that he's going to make. In Daniel chapter 9, 
and also in Matthew 24, and also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, all three of these passages or chapters, they speak about a peace agreement. But they speak in the middle of the tribulation period that this peace agreement is going to be broken. It's going to be broken by the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation period. It's going to be a time that the Antichrist and the false prophet is going to set up an image within the tribulation temple. The beast, the Antichrist, his image set up in the earthly temple that's going to be rebuilt is going to demand that all Jews would worship him as God. It's going to be a turning point for the nation of Israel that is here on earth. As they are going to finally realize they've been deceived. This man of peace, this one who comes on the scene as the man of peace with the peace agreement. Is going to be found out to be false. And they're going to flee into the desert, into the wilderness. To escape really what the Antichrist wants to do, and that's to destroy every living Jew that remains. And even though this world, or the whole world, and this is both Jews and Gentiles, are going to be affected by these events that are going to be taking place, all the three sets of plagues coming down upon this earth, Israel still is a focal point in the tribulation period And I would say that Satan himself has Israel in his crosshairs. That's what Satan wants to do, is to destroy Israel. Why? Why would Satan want to destroy Israel? This small group of people in comparison to the whole world. Because really, in essence, it it voids out every promise that God ever gave to this nation of Israel, to his people whom he loves, the promises, the covenants that he made. If Satan could somehow detour or put an end to that plan, he would win. This seven-year tribulation period for Israel is also spoken of in the Old Testament. It's, it's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. And we're going to see and read more about that even next week when we get into that last scene. But we read in the book of Jeremiah about it. In chapter 30, verse 4, it says, Now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Remember, Israel was to the north and Judah was to the south. The 12 tribes of Israel. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turn pale asking a question? It speaks of fear. It speaks of what's coming. It speaks of this day of trouble that is going to come upon the nation of Israel 
He says, alas, for that great day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he, speaking about Jacob, speaking about Israel, will be saved out of it. God has a plan for the nation of Israel. But Israel is going to suffer much for their unbelief, for their sin, for their compromise, for their idolatry, for all of these things that they have done. They're going to suffer greatly for it. Yet God is going to be merciful. God wants to save a remnant of his people, not because of their uh, faithfulness, but because he is faithful. This time of Jacob's trouble is going to bring what we might say double trouble for Israel. Israel is going to suffer for their disobedience. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 40, verse 1, we read that Israel is going to receive double for their sins. It says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. You see, when God is done bringing chastisement against his people, When God is done chastising you, what does God want to do? He wants to, again, extend mercy. He wants to pour out His mercy upon us. But God knows how long it takes. And for all of these years in Israel's disobedience, God says you're going to suffer double for your sins. This time of trouble for Israel is going to be a time of anti-Semitism. We're seeing it growing rapidly in our world today. It, It may be when we look back at the Holocaust that transpired back in World War II, two thirds of the nine million Jews that lived in Europe at the time, six million of those Jews out of the nine million were killed in the Holocaust. Satan going after God's people. And Satan hasn't stopped. As a matter of fact, what happened in the Holocaust when it comes to the tribulation period is going to make that seem like it's small in comparison. You see, during the tribulation period, God is going to deal with the nation of Israel specifically. He's going to deal with the Gentile nations also, but he has a specific plan for Israel. We might put Israel into four distinct groups, four different places that the Jews are today. The first is the unbelieving Jews. Now, I've been told that a huge portion of the population of Israel today claims to be atheist. I mean, Think of that. This is God's people whom he gave his word to and the law and everything. And many of them, a majority of them claim to be atheists. They don't even believe in God. 
They're the largest group out of the four. They're the ones that are going to buy into this peace treaty when the Antichrist comes on the scene. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. But we also read in the book of Zechariah, in chapter 13, verse 8, that it shall come to pass in all of the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. But one-third shall be left in it. I will bring one-third, listen to this, I will bring one-third through the fire. He's speaking about Israel. will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. You see, God has a plan. He's going to bring Israel and many of the Jews to repentance. But there's going to be a lot of suffering that they have ahead. Two-thirds will die. And one-third will be saved and survive. The second group, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that we already read about, Back in Revelation chapter 7. These 144,000 are sealed by God. God's hand of protection is going to be upon them. And they will survive the seven year tribulation period. They're going to be standing on Mount Zion with the Lord in the end. There's also the converted Jews. Those who came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They put their faith. They came to believe that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. And many of them are going to come to know that during the tribulation period. Remember what we read back in chapter 7. Where John says that he saw this great multitude. Which no one could number. Of all nations, tribes, peoples and tongues. And they were standing before the Lamb. Clothed in white. This multitude that John saw. I believe consists of many Jews. But it also probably consists of Gentiles also. An enormous amount of people are going to be saved. During the tribulation period. Some of those people getting saved might be people who you love. That have not yet received Christ. That may receive him there. Then, during the tribulation. The fourth group of people that we read is the faithful remnant. The faithful remnant of Israel, which will be those Jews who will survive the tribulation period. Not everyone's going to survive. There are going to be many that are going to have to give up their life. They're going to have to be martyred for Christ. But there will be a remnant of Jews that will survive the tribulation period. There will be a lot of Gentiles also that will survive, that will give their life to Christ. And they will not be killed during the tribulation period. They will survive. But this remnant, and I've used this word remnant numerous times. But I want you to understand when we're talking about a remnant of Israel, what are we saying? It's actually a Hebrew word. It's 
that refers to a portion of a quantity. So in other words, you have the whole nation of Israel, but there's a portion of the quantity of Israel that God is going to save. It's going to be a smaller part of a larger part that God is going to save. A remnant or a portion of his people are going to be spared. They're going to be preserved. They're going to escape. They're going to survive, even under these conditions, during the Great Tribulation. And so you have these four groups that make up the nation of Israel. I shared last week that the first six verses could be seen as a historical snapshot of Israel. It doesn't give us all the details, does it, in six verses. It doesn't tell us every detail of all of their their history. But it does remind us that the spiritual battle between Israel and Satan, it goes all the way back to the very first prophecy in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Remember what we read. The first prophecy in the Bible reads, and I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, here it is again, Israel, and between your seed, Satan, and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In just six verses last week, it takes us all the way back to Genesis, and it looks forward to the book of Revelation, those last three and a half years of the tribulation period. That's a 6,000 year span plus of time. 6,000 plus years of time have transpired. The focus of chapter 12 is really Satan's hatred And his determination to wipe out every Jew that he can before his time is up. He knows that he has a limited time. He knows prophecy. Did you know uh, that Satan knows the Bible? He knows the Bible. He distorts the Bible. He distorts truth, but he knows the truth. He has a short time. And the first six verses also, I believe, are foundational to our understanding of the rest of this chapter. Today, we're going to look at the war in heaven and Satan being thrown out of heaven. And then next week, we're going to see and we're going to look at the woman, Israel, being persecuted and how God is going to protect them throughout the second half of the tribulation period. Look at your Bibles at chapter 12, verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. How would you like to see this being fought out in heaven? One of the brothers last week, said to me after service, man, I wish we had some video running up here and we could, we could actually get a visual of what this actually looks like. I thought that would be cool if I had a video of it. But here's the thing, we may be able to see. But keep in mind, we're in heaven. 
If you believe in the rapture of the church, we're in heaven right now. And Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. It'd be cool. We're going to get real time of what's going on in heaven at that time. Verse 7 tells us who's fighting the war. It's Michael and his angels and the dragon who is Satan and his angels. Michael is known as Michael the archangel. And this word archangel is again, it's a compound word that comes from two Hebrew words that when you put them together, it means a chief angel. And so Michael the archangel in scripture is a chief angel, or we might say he is the ruler of the other angels. He's the the head angel, we might say, or we might call him the five-star general in heaven. Michael the archangel, the chief of princes, one of the highest ranking angels of God. And here's God giving not only Michael the archangel this time to cast Satan out, but Michael is also the protector of Israel. He's the protector of God's people. You see, by name, Michael is only found one time in the book of Revelation. But we see in two other occasions, John seeing this mighty angel, as he puts it. We see it in chapter 10, verse 1. We also see it in chapter 18, verse 21, where it's referred to as a mighty angel. And there's a very high probability we're We're seeing here another time that Michael is being used by God. In the New Testament, we find his name Michael one time, and that's found in the book of Jude in verse 9. This is how it reads. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses did not dare pronounce against him, speaking about Satan, a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And so what we see, and I believe it's a good reminder for us all, is that Satan is powerful. He's more powerful than any one of us, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You see, we don't have to fear Satan. Because we have one greater who dwells inside of us. When you're a child of God, God's hand of protection is upon you. But even Michael the archangel himself, even when he was disputing over the body of Moses with Satan, said, the Lord rebuke you. Even Michael stood there knowing that God, the Lord, is the one who is all-powerful. It's a reminder for all of us. The greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We see a similar battle between bad angel and good angels in the book of Daniel. We read in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, it tells us, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia, this would have been an evil angel that was presiding over Persia at the time, withstood me 21 days and behold Michael 
one of the chief princes came to help me. For I had been left alone with, there with the kings of Persia. And then we read in verse 21 of that same chapter. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. I like that. I'll tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. He says, no one upholds me against these, speaking about these demonic angels, except Michael, your prince. And so Michael, going to battle, the prince of angels in heaven. We also um, have this war in heaven now where the dragon and his angels are going to come to battle with Michael and his angels. This name dragon that we find here in chapter 12 it's actually used 13 times in the book of Revelation. Eight of those times are in this chapter that we're in this morning. In verse 4, it tells us that Satan, that Satan's tail, it drew a third of the stars with him to the earth. These stars, we might say, are the good angels that went bad. Remember, a third of the angels left their habitation and followed after Satan. We call them demons today. We've already learned that there appears to be some angels who have access to and from heaven and some that have been locked up in the abyss. God locked them up. These, we might say, are the real, the real terrors, if they're not all, but the real terrors, the ones that God locked up in the abyss for a specific period of time that he would let them loose for his purposes and God's timing. And so we have some angels that are locked up. Some appear to have access into the heavens. Remember uh, back in chapter 9, verse 13. It says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. These are bad angels. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to do what? To kill a third of mankind. That's during the tribulation period. One third of mankind. We're not told what this heavenly warfare that we read about here, what it actually looks like. We're not even told if there's any weaponry involved. We don't know what this the scene will really, but maybe we'll be there. Maybe we'll be able to see this scene when we're in heaven with the Lord. But I started then. He probably doesn't tell us because we wouldn't comprehend it anyway. But there's going to be this battle between Michael and his angels and Satan and the fallen angels. Look at what it says in verse 8. 
We're told the outcome of this war. But they did not prevail. Aren't you happy? They did not prevail. Don't ever get it mixed up in your mind that when these battles are going on, we're all sitting here wondering who's going to win. God always wins. But we see here this battle being fought. And then we see, but they did not prevail. In other words, Satan and his angels, they lost the fight. Nor was any place found for them in heaven any longer. What's interesting to me about this war is God didn't even need to fight it himself. He didn't even have to be the one that would fight against Satan and that third of the angels that had fallen. He just simply said, Michael, get some of the other angels and go cast Satan and his angels out of heaven. And it was done. That's it. The Lord didn't even need to be there. He used his own angel to do the what he wanted to be done. I think sometimes when people sit and watch the fight on TV, I don't know if any of you watch fights on TV, but there are people that sit and watch the fights. And they bet on it. And all the while they're sitting there with uncertainty as to who's going to win. But not in this situation. Not for us as believers. Not when we read our Bibles. But they did not prevail. And they won't prevail. And we don't have to wonder who's going to win out in the end. We have the advantage also as God's children who know His Word. Who have the sword of the Spirit that we can take in hand, that we always win in Jesus Christ. He, we are always victorious in the Lord. We're more than conquerors through Him who loves us. He, you see, we don't lose. You won't lose. And in the end, Satan will not prevail against you. God will prevail. Your redemptive Work the work that God has done in your life, it will prevail. You will be in God's presence. You don't have to wonder if Satan is going to get a hold of you and somehow keep you out. You will prevail because he prevailed. That's the advantage we have. Aren't you thankful? If you're a child of God this morning, oh man. We have so much to be thankful for. Amen. I'm hoping for that. Give a clap. Amen. You prevail. On Tuesday night, we're in the book of Ephesians. And we're in chapter 6 right now about putting on the armor of God. And I want to read that to us because I think it's important. But Ephesians 6.10 
starts with, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And though you prevail, and though you will prevail, there is a real spiritual battle that is raging every time you go out into this world. There's even spiritual battle that can rage within the walls of this church. There is a spiritual battle that is alive, and we as Christians need to be aware of it. We need to be aware of the battle that's around us in the world. When you look at the things on the newscast, when you're looking at everything that's going wrong in this world, know that there is a spiritual significance behind all of it. We have the advantage, though. It's because you're more than a conqueror through him who loves you. You don't have to stand in fear. You don't have to wonder whether or not the demons and the principalities and powers are going to get an advantage over you unless you yield. Now, if you yield to those things, if you're not on guard for those things, if you don't put on your armor every single day, then you open yourself up for defeat. He's real. He's alive. It's a real battle. Verse 9, it tells us that Satan is going to change residence once again. He's going to, if you want to say, have a a forced eviction. He's going to be cast out of heaven, whether he likes it or not. Look what it says in verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Satan had to move house. He's had to move house actually a few times in his time. His first residence was when he was with God in fellowship with God until iniquity was found in him. Imagine that. He was an angel with God in God's presence, rejoicing with all of the angels until iniquity was found in him. His second place of residence was when he was cast to the earth. Which included, I believe, when he was able to go into the Garden of Eden. And go in there and tempt Eve and Adam in the Garden of the Fall came. He was cast down to earth. From the heavenlies down to the earthly. And it appears that in this time he has been able to have access. In some way access into the heavenlies. We know that from the book of Job. In chapter 1, verse 7, it says that the Lord said to Satan, from where did you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, 
from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And so Satan has access and apparently angels with him, fallen angels with him to some realm within the heavenlies. But here in our text in verse 8, we're told that heaven is now off limits for Satan. It's off limits for those fallen angels. There was no place in heaven for them any longer. Amen? Amen. Amen. Satan still has another residence ahead of him. You know when that might be? He's got another residence ahead. He's he's actually going to be bound up in prison. We'll call this a thousand year prison sentence. A thousand year prison time that he is going to spend. When we're reigning and ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years, he's going to be locked up for a thousand years. His last place of residence after he's released from that bottomless pit, that last place of residence is going to be the lake of fire. We read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, that Satan, the devil, will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet also are and they will be tormented night and day forever and ever. How long is that? That's forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Your adversary, the devil, that John sees here as the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan. Did you know that Satan himself has many names that have been attributed to him? Do you know why there's so many names attributed to him? Because you could read your Bible and you could read all the names that have been given to him to give you and I a warning that we have a real enemy out there that is referred to as the accuser. You ever felt that? How about the angel of the bottomless pit? How about the adversary in 1 Peter 5.8? How about the angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11.14? The Antichrist, who is an opponent of the Messiah in 1 John 4.3. Beelzebub, which means the dung god or the ruler of demons. In Luke eleven fifteen, Belial, which that name means worthlessness. In Second Corinthians six fifteen, he's referred to as the enemy, the hostile one, the hateful, the wicked one, the god of this world. He's Lucifer, which means the morning star. In Isaiah fourteen twelve, he's the man of sin or the man of offense. He's the son of perdition or the son of destruction in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. He's a murderer and a liar. He's a falsifier. He's the father of all lies, according to John 8.44. He's the power of darkness, Colossians 1.13. The prince of the power of the air, 
Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. He's the ruler of the darkness of this world. Ephesians 6, 12. He's the serpent or the snake. He's the tempter. According to Matthew 4, 3. He's the thief or a stealer. According to John 10, 9. Wow. That's your enemy. And have you ever felt any of those things come your way from your enemy? I had to have a little bout with a snake yesterday. But this snake was in my crawl space. Kathy called me and said, Greg, there's a snake. She had to get into the house to get it. There's a snake in there. Go get it. And I said, well, thank you. I won't tell you how I got it, but I came with it wrapped around a pole when I came out of the, from underneath. Oh, that big. Don't want those in your crawl space, by the way. But Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven. Make note of that. It's a loud voice. We've seen this a number of times. Things in heaven get loud. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser, there it is, the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. John hears this loud voice. He hears really an outburst of praise. And this voice begins to really proclaim the victory of God. Maybe these shouts, or this shout of praise, maybe it's the tribulation martyrs that we read about it back in chapter 6, verse 9, where John saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And we're told that they cried with loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Or maybe it's the loud voice of Michael the archangel himself that's proclaiming victory in the moment. Or maybe it's the church-age saints who have already now been taken to heaven and their voices, for their voices, for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God night and day has been cast down. I think it's a good chance it's going to be all of us. It's going to be a victory shout when Satan and those Demons are cast out of heaven never to be able to return again. Cleaning house. It's going to be a victory shout for many. So what do we know? Or what we do know is that the saints in heaven, just as Satan and his angels were cast out of heaven, and in this they see this final victory being won. Salvation, strength, and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ has come. It's going to be a time for rejoicing. The Satan who accuses you and condemns you and complains to God about you. You know that he's the accuser that goes before God. Look at you. 
and you're a Christian, and he and you know what the Lord on your defense says, it's a child of God, he's one of my children. You failed. And look how many times you failed. And he goes to God. He's the accuser of the brethren. And God says, I stand in their defense. I stand in your defense. We need to stand upon the word of God, don't we? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, it tells us this, for if our heart condemns us, you ever felt that bit of condemnation in your heart? If your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart and knows all things. God is greater than your heart that tells you, I'm kind of buying into this condemnation that the enemy is putting upon you. God is greater than your heart and knows all things. But if your heart condemns you not, and this is the place we want to be as Christians, then you have confidence towards God. I want to be in a place of confidence. Assurance that I'm a child of God. And then I'm going to stand upon Romans 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. No condemnation. Do you know what condemnation means? Condemnation means to be judged guilty. To be condemned really to hell. That's what, it, that's what the word of God declares for you and I as a child of God. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. It's a promise. And are you and do you stand upon that? The second, we might say the second stanza or this praise in heaven is in verse 11. Look at your Bibles. And they, and I believe that they here is the tribulation saints. Those who come to know Christ during the tribulation time. And they overcame him. That's Satan. By the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. These are tribulation saints. There are going to be many that are going to give their life for Christ. During the tribulation time. There are going to be many that are going to have to be martyred for their faith. But they have a victory shout. It happened like it did for us by the blood of the Lamb. By the word of their testimony. They weren't ashamed even unto death. And they're praising and worshiping God. Even in Satan being cast out from heaven. You see God sees victory differently than we quite often do. You see in God's perspective he already sees you and I as being victorious in Jesus Christ. He already sees it like it's a done deal. You're already victorious in me. And even when persecution comes, and even when 
uh, Christians are martyred for their faith and death comes from the enemy. We're victorious. We never lose. You can kill a Christian and they don't lose. You can ask out of Stephen when you're in heaven. You can ask out of James and you can ask out of Paul. You don't lose. You see, death for the believer has no power. It has no power any longer over you. As a matter of fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, he says that death is swallowed up in victory. Amen? Death is swallowed up in victory. We read also in verse 11, they overcame by the word of their testimony as they did not love their lives to death. I'm going to follow the Lord no matter what. If it means my death, if it means whatever, it means me giving up doing this, I'm going to follow the Lord even if it's to death. That's a person that really believes what he believes. That really believes what we're reading here is true. That it's really going to come to pass. That third stanza of praise is in verse 12. I think this praise is probably coming from all of heaven. Therefore rejoice, O heavens. And you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Because he knows that he has a short time. Because we have the victory. Because Satan knows that we have the victory. He can't take your salvation away, can he? He has no right to take that away. But he's angered over the victory shouts that he sees in your life. And he wants to do everything that he can to keep you and make you ineffective for him. During the tribulation period, Satan and these angels being cast out of heaven down to the earth. They come down having great wrath. And they're wanting to execute that wrath in a greater way. Remember when we started and back in chapter 11, I said things are going to start heating up and escalating at a faster pace. That's what we're going to see going forward in the book of Revelation. Remember that Satan can't see the future. He doesn't see the future like God sees it. He's not all-powerful. Keep that in mind. He can't create things. He's not all-powerful. Can't see the future. Can't read your mind. But we read, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Because he's coming down. He's going to be cast down to this earth. And Satan already knows that he lost the battle for the souls of those who have given their life to Christ. Those that are sealed by God. Those whom he has his hand upon. But he knows that his time is short. 
You see, we all need to have our battle gear on. Can you imagine the battle gear that the Christians, those that give their life to Christ during the tribulation period, that they're going to have to put on? You think that they're, during the, the things that are going to be transpiring on this earth, that there's going to be any Christian getting out of bed every day and not thinking about the armor that he better put on for today? It's going to be horrendous. It's going to be a time of testing like this world has never seen before, nor will ever see again. That is the tribulation period. That is what is going to transpire upon this earth. And I'm going to say, without, I'm not setting any dates, I'm going to say, look up, church. Watch what's going on around you. Look up and ready yourself for the Lord's return. And I think it's important in these days that we're living in that we stay focused, laser beamed, focused on the Lord. Keep your eyes focused. He wants to come in and he wants to destroy, wreak havoc in your life, in the marriages, in all sorts of ways. He wants to do those things. Yet we have everything at our disposal, Christians, to stand, to make a stand, to not run and retreat, to not fear, to be able to stand in these days and be a witness for Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for each of you. Next week, I'll give you the title I already have, The Woman is Persecuted. And we're going to see, really, the cost that Israel has had to pay. They've paid and will pay dearly during the tribulation period for their unbelief and for their sin. But God is merciful. God is going to save the people and the remnant of his people whom he loves. And so... Let's have the worship uh, team come up. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ, please come up and see me. We'll have somebody up here after the service if you're in need of prayer. And you just need somebody to, to pray for you. Come up and say, would you pray for me? You can even be silent about what it is, but I need prayer in the moment. And I encourage you to drop your pride and say, come on. I need to come up because I need prayer right now. I'm hurting. I need somebody to pray with me. And so there'll be somebody up here that'll pray with you. And so let's all stand. Let's worship. Let's praise the Lord for the great hope.